A warm welcome to all our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. My name is Gabriela Kocic and I'm an intern at the Danube Institute. We recently completed a two-year study titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality, and also published a two-volume set of books by the same name from Halina Historical Press in the U.S. We are now engaged in a research project called Attacks on Christian Communities and Institutions. Our special guest today is Professor Azbet Kocikian from the American University of Armenia in Yerevan. For 12 years, he taught at the Global Studies Department at Bentley University. During the last 20 years, Dr. Kocikian has traveled extensively in the Middle East and former Soviet Union. In recent years, his research on minorities has taken him to Iraq and Syria. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a distinguished fellow at the Danube Institute, Sharon Sugar, a researcher at the Institute, and Jonathan Zamberi, an intern of the Institute. Thank you for joining us, Professor Kochikian. Thank you for having me. To begin with, can you tell us a little bit about your background and research interests? I could, but we don't have enough time. Um, <laughs> um, I, st- uh, I started my academic interests by looking at uh, identity and diasporas, uh, transnational uh, organizations, being one myself. Um, switching then after that into my main dissertation work was on how small countries conduct foreign policy. Uh, I did a case study of Georgia and Armenia for that. Uh, and um, since then, uh, like most people, People who conduct a PhD research, I tried to move away from that because it was a bit too much to continue. Um, in recent years, it's mostly been, I, I, I dabbled with civil society uh, and the revolutions, uh, social unrest of revolutions, which uh, I realized that I had a back of being in the right place at the right time. Some people would say a wrong place at the wrong time in the middle of demonstrations. I've been in Istanbul during the middle of uh, demonstrations. I've been in uh, Tbilisi in the middle of demonstrations. Um, and um, more recently, I have worked on radicalization, de-radicalization in the context of Middle East, but also in Europe. As our like project focuses on Iraq right now, so could you share uh, when you first went to Iraq and what did you do there? Any like uh, personal experiences that you could share? Yeah, um, I went there in 2015. Um, it was a weird uh, research trip, mostly because of the fact that I wasn't planning on going there, but I was driving to work uh, one morning in January 2015, and there was a report about impeding, uh, impending sort of liberation uh, of uh, Mosul. So I figured out maybe I should plan my uh, my visit there to do a study on minorities, but especially the Armenian community there, as well as the uh, the obviously the Kurdish state structure that they had uh, there and the Yazidis. Um, so I arrived in May 2015. I was there for about a month, uh, traveled mostly in Iraqi Kurdistan. Alas, the, alas, the liberation of Mosul didn't happen for another two years. So um, I traveled uh, among the different minorities, mostly in Erbil. I went to Suleimania uh, and uh, tried to figure out the dynamic of state-making uh, that the Kurds were creating the state. 
Um, a lot of interesting things. I mean, obviously, also um, heart-wrenching things. Uh, as I was doing that research, I also did side research about the refugees from Syria and other parts of uh, from ISIL at the time uh, who were living in uh, camps, refugee camps, and how uh, that had an impact on the larger urban population uh, in, uh, in in Kurdistan. Uh, which basically went from you know a couple of hundred thousand to over two three million uh, within a very short period of time. So um, it was um, it was quite interesting and eye opening to see the interaction of the young uh, of, of the young people from different backgrounds about uh, looking at Kurdistan, uh, finally a country, or even if it's not de facto the uh, de jure country, but a country being Kurdistan after so many uh, years, decades, century of uh, Kurds aspiring for that. But also the realism that, you know, it's not just because it's Kurdistan, we don't want to deal with our former enemies and so on. Quite pragmatic. I mean, that was one of the most surprising components for me also to see how pragmatic they were. And you provide an overview uh, of the history and origins of the Armenian community in Iraq. Yeah, Alan. Well, um, I mean, Iraq has been on, especially north and south of Iraq. You know, uh, Mosul and Basra have been on trade routes uh, historically. You know, Silk Road and so on, so forth. One of the Silk Roads. You know, when we say Silk Road, we only think of one. So there was that line that connected Istanbul to uh, to Aleppo to Mosul. Uh, both Aleppo and Mosul were really cultural, uh, um, not just cultural, but also the commercial uh, centers at the time. So there were, in the 19th century, uh, there was an Armenian presence in Mosul. Meanwhile, in the southern part, in Basra, close to Iran, uh, which was a major hub for over three centuries of Armenian merchants and trade uh, tradesmen, merchants who connected actually India to even all, all the way to uh, the Americas, Central America, uh, before the British took over. So there was a sort of a, a, a flow of Armenian presence in in the South as well. Um, it wasn't until um, 1915, uh, after the genocide of the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire, that a lot of Armenians managed to, uh, whoever managed to uh, escape uh, to Mediterranean, or to, to the Levant, to, um, to Iraq, to Syria, uh, and so on, that the that the population changed its 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 character, but it never was a major uh, sort of hub, an Armenian hub like Aleppo was, for instance. Iraq was never neither Basra nor Mosul, uh, and of course Baghdad, being uh, the seat of the seat of the viceroy or the capital, uh, later on was quite uh, sort of uh, also um, congregated Armenians there. How did the Armenian genocide impact the presence of Armenians in Iraq? Can you tell our listeners a little about this terrible event? Yeah. Um, without going into a lot of background issues, uh, I mean, suffice it to say, for those who don't know that during the First World War, uh, like it happened in the Second World War with Nazi Germany, you know, at times of war, you can always end up, uh, even before, obviously, but uh, in the uh, in the sort of the fog of war, it's always easy to solve minority issues. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was a minority empire, and uh, they wanted to get rid of the Christian element uh, in the empire. So they devised and executed a plan of uh, forcefully relocating 
uh, and killing uh, of the Armenian population in the Ottoman Empire, which out of probably 22 million at the time was about roughly about 2 million Armenians uh, living in the Ottoman Empire. Now, uh, some uh, areas of uh, Armenian populated areas in the uh, Ottoman Empire managed to uh, actually resist. Uh, not so much different than if some of the listeners know, like the get uh, the the Warsaw Ghetto resistance uh, during the Second World War, um, and one of those places was the city of Varn in in Turkey today, which is still called Varn. Uh, that's why there are more people from or descendants from Varn than there are from other places because obviously they weren't killed. There was one guy uh, by uh, by the name of Nebon Pasha, Nebon Shagoyan. Uh, Pasha is an honorific uh, given to you know soldiers and so on. We managed to bring in lead about ten to twenty thousand Armenians from there to Iraq first, first in Mosul because that was the urban center, and then you know some of them started redistributing among in, in villages. They established new villages. Uh, some of them started living among the Kurds. Uh, cities like uh, uh, villages like Hauresk and Abzrok. Uh, the names are not that important. Uh, but then some of them kept moving down to Baghdad and Basra. So in Iraq, overall in Iraq, in the heydays, uh, the Middle East heydays, we're talking about up until the 70s, uh, mid to late 70s, there were about 25,000 Armenians uh, living, a majority of them uh, in Baghdad, but also in Basra and in Mosul and uh, the surrounds, uh, those surrounds. Most of the people living in the villages, nearby villages, uh, were there were some uh, like, um, uh, completely sort of uh, Armenian villages. Assyrian and Armenian villages were mixed. There were a couple of Assyrian and Armenian. It's quite interesting to see the dynamic. As you have done research, you could see that uh, in, in the Middle East where minorities, religious minorities, usually are closely needed uh, and uh, basically... Uh, basically what ended up happening is um, most of the Assyrian, Armenian, Chaldeans, and so on and so forth, uh, you know, they settled together. Uh, and in northern Iraq, especially in the Kurdistan area, a lot of Armenians uh, interacted with the Kurds. Um, you know, ethnically, it might, this might have to do a lot with the fact that uh, the Kurds and the Armenians uh, do have a lot of cultural similarities. Um in the words of, I remember it still, in the words of one uh, Kurdish official, is that, you know, Jesus came and separated the Kurds from the Armenians because Armenians converted to Christianity. And <laughs> Islam came and then turned the Kurds against the Armenians uh, because at, at some point the Ottoman Empire actually utilized religion to uh, use the Kurds uh, to get rid of other minorities. So it, it's quite an interesting evolution. Um, but... Um, Obviously, it had its up and down, 10 years or eight years of the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, Iran-Iraq War. Uh, so, uh, as Jeffrey would, would, would refer to that as well, the first Gulf War, probably not a lot of people would refer to that as such. Uh, but um, a lot of people started leaving, uh, 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 you know, relocating. So the, the community dwindled, um, and it wasn't until the 2003 war Right, that uh, the U.S. Uh, war with a coalition of the willing and so on and so forth, uh, that uh, the whole, you know, most of the community was gone. And the Kurdistan area became the bastion or the, the hub of Armenian uh, community, mostly because of it was safe and also because, you know, the de facto the Kurds had been 
had had a, an autonomous, independent country, uh, a region uh, for since 91, 92. And what are some of the challenges that Armenians in Iraq have faced historically or recent times? Well, historically, obviously being a minority is never a good thing. Um, even when you are used by other minorities, we see this uh, in Syria with the Alawite regime uh, relying on minorities. In Iraq, uh, also when uh, the Sunni minority, uh, and they were a minority, relying on minorities, but not always on all minorities. Um, uh, you know, the thing is that it's quite interesting when my, when it comes to minorities, religious or otherwise, ethnic or religious. Um, there are two paths either isolation or embracing um, transnational ideas. I know this is a bit irrelevant about in our work, but in our discussion, but uh, it's quite interesting to see that a lot of or a lot of communists uh, in the 1920th century uh, came from Jewish background and Armenian background because within that pan-humanistic idea, they found some sort of a security. Uh, some sort of a, a of being like the rest of everyone else, but things change, right? Obviously, things change, and uh, as the condition became worse in terms of the war between 1980 and 88 between Iran and Iraq, a lot of Armenians left. Uh, this is also sort of a, um, uh, um, a typical what happened in the Middle East uh, in Lebanon, 1975, the civil war. The Armenian community left in Iran after the revolution and the war. Again, the Armenian community dwindled. Uh, the same thing happened in Syria uh, in the last 10, 12 years. I mean, Iraq was no different uh, in, uh, from the others. So the challenge, the main challenge has always been to you know stay with business and uh, be loyal to the state, whatever that state might be or do and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, a key challenge uh, after that, especially before the Soviet Union, uh, collapse of the Soviet Union was where to go. Um, some countries, once in a while, they do have uh, Western countries in the Western Hemisphere, but also in the Southern Hemisphere, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, U.S. Uh, you know, they do have these limited windows to allow minorities to escape, uh, to settle. So they allowed that. They did that. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, some of them found, not a lot, but some of them found an opportunity in Armenia even though it was still struggling economically. So uh, all in all, um, it's the story of the Iraqi Armenians is no, not so different than most of the Armenian communities in the Middle East uh, with the challenges and tribulations and trials and so on. Uh, but at the end of the day, it has been, uh, it has been one uh, consistent decline. One thing that he interests, I, um, that's very interesting for our research is that there is a widespread wish to emigrate in Iraq and in Kurdistan across the board. There's a great pessimism about the future, but is it easier for Armenians to find shelter elsewhere to get visas and to find countries to take them in because they're Christians? Mm -hmm. Well, some of them do. I remember in 2000, even before the Syrian Civil War, New Zealand had a scheme, uh, not a scheme, I wouldn't call it a scheme, but a plan or a strategy uh, or uh, a visa for, I'm not sure if they explicitly said for Christians, but a lot of uh, a lot of Christian minorities from the Middle East uh, went to New Zealand. 
uh, on that uh, on that sort of project. Uh, a lot of Assyrians, by the way, uh, it's quite interesting. But it's always whenever you talk about the Middle East, Christians in the Middle East, especially in Syria and Iran, Armenians and Assyrians are quite integrated and intertwined. Uh, uh, and indistinguishable in terms of their names and so on and so forth, except probably for the church rights, uh, for their religious rights. Uh, Armenians, one advantage that the Armenians had is that uh, being ethnically Armenian, they had a way station in Armenia. And this we've seen among the Syrians, among the Lebanese, among Iranians, who would come to Armenia and then get Armenian citizenship um, and stay uh, safer, or use Armenia as a uh, as a launching pad uh, to continue to Europe and or uh, North America. And how has the Armenian community in Iraq maintained its cultural identity and heritage while being part of a diverse society? One thing I have to mention here is that when we talk about the Armenian community in Iraq, we are not talking about one community. Uh, the Kurdistan, Armenians in Kurdistan are completely different, have a diff different typology, if you, if you want to call it. Um, in urban areas, in Mosul, in Baghdad, in Basra historically as well, they maintained their identity as they did in everywhere else in the Middle East. Schools, you know, uh, cultural and, and or uh, athletic organizations. Uh, religion, obviously, religion is one of the key elements, key components uh, that allows them uh, to be uh, separate and maintain a level of identity. So that's a common denominator uh, among all and in Iraq as well. And this is also true in the case of Baghdad uh, and Basra, well, not so much in, in Basra anymore, but Baghdad. In Kurdistan, uh, in basically Erbil, in Zaho, in Dohu, these are some of the towns there. Armenians, Ar Armenian identity is primarily based on religion. Um, some of them are Kurdish speaking. They do not even know Armenian. Uh, they do have priests uh, who visit the parishes and, and, and so on and so forth. They believe in that. Um, <laughs> there is this interesting story once someone told me that at some point, you know, in Armenian church, right, uh, married, you have to be at least seven degrees of separation to get married uh, with, with, with each other. Seven degrees. You cannot marry someone who's, uh, you know, seven degrees of uh, familial uh, separation. I think it's quite interesting. Like all religions, you earn, earn, always end up having uh, some kind of a, a, a medical reason that they justify as a, <laughs> as a religious uh, uh, thing. But because they didn't have enough uh, sort of uh, people, they actually appealed to the Catholicos, who's the, the patriarch or who's the head of the Armenian church in Armenia, uh, to bring that down to five generations. So, in a, in a way, they do have a sense of that they're Armenian. Um, some of them, they like jokingly, but some are integrated. They say, I'm a Kurdish, a Christian Kurd, uh, jokingly, but religion. Uh, and the church is the key key element for the Iraqi Kurdistan uh, Armenians living there. I mean, the building churches recently they uh, they set up a church in Zaho in 2021. They renovated it in Erbil when they didn't have a church, where they didn't have a church, uh, they built a new church. So the church seems to be the center. Even if you're an atheist or a non-believer, you would 
uh, sort of uh, coalesce around the church as an institution, as a culture. Because don't forget, the Armenian church is also a national church. It's, it, it is an Armenian apostolic church. So it's quite, uh, it is Armenian. It's not just Christian. It is Christian apostolic Armenian church. So it is already defined in it. It has elements of culture, national identity and, and culture. Where did the funding for rebuilding these churches come from? Because I, I know Hungary Helps has done quite a lot in the area and in Zako and Dobuk. And I'm wondering if the Beyond Hungary Helps, if there's a larger commitment by the international community to be able to rebuild these institutions. Well, uh, now we raise the issue of follow the money. Uh, I have it. But I know for a fact that in some of the churches in Kurdistan, uh, there was this uh, beneficiary, there was this philanthropist, uh, 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 a, a Syrian philanthropist, uh, Sarkis Avajan, uh, who actually uh, did a lot of, uh, he funded some of the churches, uh, building of some of the churches, especially if I'm not mistaken, in uh, in Zaf, uh, not Zafo, in, in Dohuk. Um, so, and the Kurdish government, you know the Kurds take pride uh, in helping the government. I think you know, that the church in uh, the, the recent church that was renovated, Zafo Church, uh, the Erbil Church, excuse me, uh, in uh, uh, in the Christian cor- uh, quarter in, uh, in in Erbil, uh, got a uh, serious funding and considerable funding from the uh, Iraq, uh, Kurdistan regional government uh, for that. Uh, so it's it's a more or less. It's a local enterprise, it more or less. I mean, I would say predominantly local enterprises or local funding, uh, with some assistance. Uh, it could be symbolic, but still, I think uh, you know there is international support and funding. Uh, in terms of numbers, how many Armenians are there in Iraq today, and where are they located? That's the million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> uh, it, <laughs> One thing I always tell my students is that uh, Lebanon is a case study because the last time they did a census there, they took a census there, was 1936. They never did it. From that point on, it's all estimate. Um, so you could have an educated guess, an estimate. Um, one thing I tried to do in some places when looking at these numbers and so on, I look at school enrollment uh, because that gives you a, a fairly good idea depending on the demographics of the population. And um, I don't well, you're going to quote me on this, but don't quote me on this. But mm-hmm. I would say at this point, probably there is about five to 8,000 at best Armenians in Iraq, majority living in Iraqi Kurdistan. Don't forget, as I said, that Erbil is like, uh, Kurdistan is a safe haven. It's secure. You don't have a lot of terrorist attacks and so on. So you have a flow, even Arabs coming from Baghdad and other parts of Iraq to find jobs. And it's booming in Baghdad. No pun intended here, but it's it's really a developing uh, uh, sort of a city and region. Um, just I wanted to fly from Erbil to uh, Baghdad and come back like within a day or two. There were plenty of seats on the flight out from Erbil to Baghdad, but no no seats at all uh, from Baghdad back. You know that that also tells you uh, to what extent you have. So roughly, I would say. If you really put me in a corner as to for to give you a more concrete number, I would say about three to four thousand in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan and about two thousand roughly in the rest of Iraq. Okay, and in terms of religion, uh, we read that uh, many members of the Armenian Apostolic Church fled to Kurdistan 
while the Armenian Catholic Church uh, is not that present in Kurdistan, did they remain in Baghdad, or why why did this split happen? The well, the Catholic Church state, um, as you well, you might not know, but about nine eighty five to ninety percent of the Armenians are, are apostolic Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a small minority of Protestant, and then you have about seven eight percent. Uh, the Catholic Church, the, uh, the the Catholic diocese, uh, they have centers. They have it in Syria. They have it in Lebanon, and so on. So I'm not sure how many. Uh, what was the parish number of the Armenian Catholics? But the fact remains that most of the Armenians in Iraqi Kurdistan are apostolic. So there was no place or no need even uh, for the Catholic Church to establish a base or a church or or or, or a presence uh, there. So whatever remained, and this is the. Uh, unfortunate um, sort of progress of time and uh, of history, right? The slow and um, sort of undignified sort of decline of community centers, churches, and so on. You know, they should always put aside saying, you know, please, the last person leaving, turn off the lights kind of a thing. Um, The Catholics might have fared better because, you know, their affiliation with the Catholic Church, probably they might have had better opportunities to, to migrate. Um, that's why they they didn't even bother to, um, and this is speculation, an educated guess. That's why they don't have any uh, center uh, in uh, or any churches in in Kurdistan. The Armenian um, policy uh, in Baghdad is the one that actually manages Kurdistan as well. Each most um, countries have a single policy or a diocese. Depends on where they belong to. Policy is the term used if they are attached to the Armenian Catholicos in Lebanon, and it's called diocese if it's a, a Armenian church is attached to the, uh, in Armenia, the HBIZ. So except for Iran, Iran has both. The United States and North America have actually several of those, but in Iraq, it's the Armenian, uh, Armenia, uh, Armenia diocese uh, based in Baghdad, uh, but their main parish, their main followers are obviously in I mean, uh, Kurdistan, pardon. Yeah. Uh, and until this Armenian church was built in, in Erbil, uh, we heard that Father Kalatian was able to perform or give services in um, in the Assyrian church. So could you tell us about the co- cooperation between uh, churches in Kurdistan? I could, but in very rough sketches, in very broad uh, sort of uh, picture. Uh, one thing is that uh, while the Armenian Apostolic Church is a national church, it also belongs to the larger uh, larger Eastern uh, Orthodox, Eastern Rite churches, which includes the Assyrians, the Chaldeans, and many others, uh, as you may know. Um, so uh, immediately after Mosul uh, fell, uh, after Mosul fell in 2000, uh, um, 2012, if I'm not mistaken, um, um Armenians came to Erbil, and that was like the the closest area. So uh, as the, they settled, uh, they didn't have a church. So it was not uncommon to use uh, that. This was a common practice. The Ethiopian church, by the way, is very close to the Armenian church in terms of its rights. The, the Coptic church is also. Uh, so there has always been that cooperation uh, among the uh, Eastern uh, Rite churches uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's not inconceivable that uh, a Coptic or Ethiopian uh, archbishop or priest, you know, participates in a uh, in a wedding, Armenian wedding, or or funeral rites, and so on and so forth. 
So in terms of doctrinally, they have always been close. Uh, and uh, this is the reason why, obviously, uh, that they had uh, they held uh, their services. The Armenians held their services in such churches until they got their own. When we were doing our field work in Kurdistan, which was back in March, was really struck by particularly the Assyrian community and the way that they were building institutions, um, schools, organizations, hospitals, um, doctors on wheels for the villages, women's organizations, student organizations, on and on. Have the Assyrians in Kurdistan been involved in this kind of institution building? Uh the Assyrians, I mean, you, you did talk about the Assyrians. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I meant the Armenians. There's uh, so many they starting are, with A in Iraq. Yeah. Armenian, Assyrian, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tomato yes. tomato. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, yes, but not, uh, I, I mean, I would like to read more about this, about the Assyrian state uh, institution building capacity. Um, uh, yes and no in the case of the Armenians. Uh, clearly, there is an activism uh, in terms of the institution building among uh, all the minorities in uh, in Kurdistan. With the case of in the case of the Armenians, first of all, there are a couple of components that uh, you have to consider that the Assyrians don't have in this case, which is a good and a bad thing. Is that uh, Ar Armenia has a consulate in in Erbil, so uh, any kind of an institution building could allow. Uh, that consulate to to act as a nexus. Uh, now, the other thing is that the number of churches in the last five years or so built uh, in uh, several towns or renovated churches built or renovated has you know mushroomed beyond uh, you know uh, beyond any anything that anyone would expect in a community that small. So. Um, I would say yes, but not in the in, turn, in the sense that the Assyrians are doing building institutions, but mostly again concentrating around the church, concentrating around uh, the church as an institution, and around it having auxiliaries. Right? You have the women's auxiliary, you have the athletic auxiliary, you have uh, this and that. Uh, and the Assyrians are actually more. I have always been more active in, in, uh, in, in Kurdistan. Hence, probably also the reason why they are more. Um, uh, secular uh, institution building. Uh, don't forget that the Iraqi regional parliament does have representatives uh, for uh, Assyrians and Armenians. There's one Armenian uh, representative and probably I think two or two maybe Assyrian ones. Uh, and here's an interesting fact. Uh, the Kurdistan regional government at some point uh, recognized or adopted a resolution making Armenian one of the official languages next to the Kurdish uh, uh, language. And this actually uh, can, not most most Armenians didn't speak Armenian anyway, but, um, you know, Armenians are an ethnic and also religious minority with a uh, distinct religion from the other Christians and a distinct language as well. And how do the Armenians in Iraq maintain connections with the homeland and with the diaspora? Not sure they could make, uh, maintain the contact with the diaspora, except for those who actually left the Iraqi Armenians, who left mostly to the Netherlands and to Sweden and some to Canada, North America, Canada, United States. So they have a, that connection. But um, with Armenia, um, there is a semi-regular flight from Erbil to Yerevan. 
uh, you know, uh, that in itself, like that's a real connection, literal connection. Um, you do see a lot of uh, a lot of them coming in. They're not; they don't come in droves to Armenia. They don't go to dro- in droves in Armenia and vice versa. But uh, there is that connection. You would see that a lot, uh, a lot of that. Um, the consulate probably is not as active as one would should should be. Um, that's also one of the things about Armenian uh, embassies and consulates around the world is that. Um, depending on the consul or the ambassador, they usually try to maintain a relation with the local Armenian community. Um, as far as I have observed, the Armenian consulate uh, in Erbil hasn't done that actively. Yet, again, the fact that you have a weekly flight, sometimes twice a week uh, in, during the summertime of, from Erbil to uh, Armenia, uh, brings a lot of people back and forth uh, between the two countries. Thank you so much, Professor Kotikian, for being here and for answering all our questions. There is going to be a second part of this podcast, which will be broadcast later. And I ask our listeners to stay tuned for the continuation of our discussions with Professor Aspet Kotikian. Thank you.